0: Well, good morning. It has been a great morning so far. It has been the most interesting morning I think we've had here at Stone Oak. Um, For those of us in the room that are a little moist and damp, it's because we love you. It was an act of love, Um, but it was a fun morning. Also, we did something interesting this morning that if you weren't here, you missed out. We had breakfast together. It was the first time as a church we did it. So at 8.45, we had tables back here, and we just came together. With no agenda, no nothing, we just ate together. It was an incredible time with great food. We're going to do it more often. But if you missed out on that, um, I'm going to make sure to get you guys the date for the next one so that you can be a part of that because it was a blast. Um, Candace and I with the boys were in Dallas this week. And I bring this up just because I want to encourage you. Uh, one of the, the churches that have had such a big part in sending us uh, is in Dallas. And, and we got to talk with some of those, those people, incredible people. I want to tell you, church, you're not alone. We are not alone. So many people are praying for us daily. So many people have our backs. And so I just wanted to let you know, And you have a very proud pastor. Because as I was talking, I was, kind of found myself bragging about you guys and, and just the people God has brought, and um, just telling your story, it just made me proud to be a part of this church family. And so I just want to thank you, let you know um, you have a church, you have several people praying for you, but you have a church in Dallas who loves you dearly and is praying for you. Uh, on that note, we have been in a series on the book of James, and it has been incredible. I've I've loved um, diving into it every week. This morning, though, we get to launch into the most difficult passage in the book. Uh, We get to talk about one of the most difficult passages, actually, some would say in the Bible itself. We get to talk about one of the most famous passages of of James. We believe all scripture is inspired by God. Amen? That we believe it is true, that it is the word of God, that in more than that, we believe it's meant to be understood. And um, Having said that, there are some texts, though, that we come across that make us stop, and it raises some questions. It raises some questions, honest questions as we read the text, and hear me, that is okay. No matter where you are in your faith, young or old, your background in church, that is okay. Um, Often it is in these moments when we are having to search ourselves and figure out what is going on here, those are the moments sometimes that God just really tends to grow us. And when I say grow us, it's, it, he tends to grow our, our understanding of him. That's my prayer this morning, that we will, that we will see that. And here at Stone Oak, we're not going to avoid these passages. Uh, but here's, here's my prayer. I hope that we can handle, handle them with grace. And that through all of them, that it will grow our faith and our trust in Jesus. That is our goal. That's what we are, are looking to do. I want to take a moment. I want to pray for us. And then let's jump in. God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the moments we've, we've been uh, so far in as we've been eating together, as we've been just worshiping you through song. I thank you for the lyrics that we just sang. What an incredible proclamation that we get to make. And more than that, I thank you that the words that we just sang are true and that we can stand on So now I pray that you open our eyes, you open our hearts as you promised you would. It's in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, the structure of the, the scripture that we are in today is fairly simple. The content is not all that simple, but the structure is, is fairly simple. What James is going to do is he's going to give us a couple examples followed by a nice, neat, and tidy summary statement at the end of each example. So, um, st- and he repeats this three times. So starting first in verse 14, he says that, and, and Thomas just read this for us, he says that, that uh, faith without works is like a man who's in great physical need, right? Uh, that a man who doesn't have food, clothing, clothing. Uh, And faith without works is a lot like giving that man nothing more than words. Nothing more than words. And James says, what good is that? Then following that, he gives us his first nice and clean little summary statement in verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Then he moves into the second one. This one is probably my favorite. In verse 18. Uh, he starts in and he gives us this analogy of demons. And he says, so you believe that God is one? Congrats, awesome, so do demons. And then he moves on and he says, he gives us another kind of clean summary statement in verse 20. It says, faith apart from works is useless. We'll move into the third example now. Uh, he gives us the examples of Abraham and Rahab. And uh, in these, he shows the way they demonstrated, showed their faith by what they did. And then, right after that, again, a summary statement in verse 26 that says, "For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." So James's point here is clear. He repeats it for us three times. He says, "Faith without works is dead," or in other words, useless. Um, so that's where he's he's going now. Right off the bat, some of us might begin to feel some tension. Some of us begin to maybe feel a little tension in this because we say all the time, I mean all the time, we say, "Your standing with God is not based on anything you do; that you do nothing to add to it, you do nothing to aid it. it your works don't save you; they never have, they never will." We say this all the time. Um, You're saved by grace through faith. The work that is required for your salvation is done by someone else, not you. It's done by Jesus. And it's completed. It doesn't need our help to make it complete. Uh, But here, though, James seems to be inserting something. He seems to be inserting something, he says, without works. And so how does this fit together? More than that, though, some of you might begin to feel a tension between other passages in the New Testament, other passages in the New Testament, specifically between two New Testament authors, James and Paul. James and Paul. I bring this up because many people, this has been a big stumbling block for a lot of people throughout church history. This has led some people to discount, discredit James altogether. Uh, this has been a big deal, a big uh, point of contention um, for the church historically, again, we believe all scripture is true, inspired by God. Amen? Amen. And we know that this is God's word, and just as there's no contradiction in God, that we can be just as confident that there's no contradiction in his word. And so this morning, what I want to do um, is just take a moment and look directly at this. To put it on the table. So in James 2, it says, faith without works is dead. It's useless. Uh, Later on in what what Thomas just read, he says, was not Abraham justified by works? Now, let's look at some of the things Paul says. Now, I'm going to have these on the screen, okay? So if you don't want to be flipping back and forth, that's fine. If you do, if you want to see the bigger context, I invite you. We're going to be in Romans for some of this, okay? So let's start in Romans 3. Paul says, "For we hold that no one is justified by faith, or that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." In Romans 5:1, "Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." Um, he continues in, in Romans four. Verse 2 It says, For Abraham, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So, here on this side, James says, Faith without works is dead, completely dead. But over here on this side, Paul seems to be saying, You don't need works, it's faith and by faith alone. And you have this tension, and that's the tension that so much of the church has been wrestling with when it comes to this text. And so what's going on here? Are they at odds? Is James and Paul having a little throwdown theologically right here? Are they at odds? On the surface, if you just read these texts out of their own context and you put them side by side, you see a lot of kind of problems. But the moment I'm going to propose this, the moment you take those texts and you put them into their context, some of that tension begins to go away. It begins to dissipate. And that's what I want to look at. Um, Let's consider first Paul's appeal in Romans. So he's laying out in the book of Romans how we are saved. How is one justified? How are we saved before God? And Paul, remembers is in a culture that, uh, where the people around him believed that if they could just do the right things, that they could be okay with God. And Paul in this culture is loudly and boldly saying, no. No, you are sinners in need of grace. In fact, in in chapter 3, later on in that chapter we just read, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is saying, No, you you cannot do this. You cannot earn this before a perfect God. You are a sinner. Um, Paul says that we're made right by faith and by faith alone. That when we stand before God, there's nothing we bring to that table. And Paul is saying that loud and clear, that that it is through faith that we have peace with God. He says it's the same with Abraham. Paul goes back and and looks at Abraham, and he says it was by his faith that he was made right with God. It wasn't by anything good in him. It wasn't his works. Uh, What Paul is talking about is something we call justification. Uh, Justification is the moment the act when we are made right before God. Make sense? Paul is talking about that moment. He doesn't end there though. Let's continue with Paul in Romans chapter six. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Did you see that? Did you see what Paul just did? He moved from being saved, transformed by grace through faith alone, and now he is calling those who have been saved to live out what God has done in them. Um, If you see it, it's subtle. He moves. He says, we're not supposed to keep living the way we did so that grace can just cover it. No, we are saved, we are transformed, and now we are called to something different. Um, We're dead in sin. We're not meant to live in it. So Paul shifts from justification, and now he talks about how the justified are to live. Hang in there with me. We're we're about to to get to James. Um, Sanctification, he moves from justification to sanctification. Justification is, is us being made right before God. Sanctification now is the way we live out what Jesus has put in us, the way we become more like him. The living out of the faith doesn't justify a person, but the justified live out their faith. Does that make sense? So this is Paul's world. This is where Paul is. And Paul, the last one I'll give you on Paul in Galatians 5, 6. And I love this. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But listen to this. But only faith working through love. Paul says, faith working through love. Faith working. Church, this is where James steps in. This is where James steps in. Let's consider James. In the context of James, he's looking around at a broken and hurting world. And he's looking at his church that is content with doing nothing. And he says, what good is it that you sit here and you claim that Jesus has radically changed you and yet... You do nothing. James says, what good is that? What good is it? It's dead. It's useless. Notice James never says, do these things so that you can be saved. He's saying, you're saying you're saved. Do these things. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Um, Let's look at the way, and I love this, the way that Paul uses justify and James uses justify. Paul uses it in a more judicial way for us to be declared righteous, right? That's the way James is using it, and he's saying it's only by faith, but Paul or James uses it differently. James uses it to mean, in a more practical way, to mean to demonstrate to be right, to demonstrate to be right. Have you ever done something that proved you were right? Husbands, your wives love it when you do this to them, when you just prove you're right and justified, right? That's what James is, is talking about, and so for James, uh, James uses the Abraham example to show, hey, Abraham had faith, and he demonstrated it. He showed it by what he did. It's the same term, but just different, uh, different uses. One last one is the way um, that Paul and James use the term faith alone. This is really interesting, that in faith alone for Paul is seen in a positive light, Right? It's faith with nothing added to it that gets us right with God. That's different, though, the way James uses it. James uses this in a negative light to say, your faith alone is never meant to be alone. Um, James here is, is saying, don't deceive yourselves into thinking that that faith alone means that it is alone. We've said this before that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Martin Luther said that. It is beautiful. It is beautiful because that's what James is saying. He's saying, works don't need to be added to faith, but faith works. Faith does. So my hope is that you see that James and Paul are not at conflict, that this James verse Paul thing is not a true thing for us to stand on. It's not, it's not what's going on here. The fact is that James and Paul simply use the same words in slightly different contexts to describe both sides of the same coin. Does that make sense? Amen. Not only are James and Paul not in conflict, but they fit beautifully together to give us a full picture of what it means for us to walk In Christ they fit together beautifully Um, it should honestly sound familiar to what we've talked about over the last few weeks when we say be hearers and doers of the word don't just be a hearer but be a hearer and a doer it's the same thing here because James is saying your faith is called to do your faith is called to to do and um, I want to look just really briefly at the text now, at the different examples that James uses, because I think it'll open our eyes just a bit. Uh, the first one is in in verse fourteen. James says, "With without food or clothes." This most likely is a reference to those who are kind of ongoing out; they don't have food or clothing. It's kind of it paints a picture for us of kind of the homeless of our society. That's what it. it that's what this text is. It seems to be pointing to. And James says, "Church, what?" good does it for us to look at them and say, I hope it goes well for you, and to do nothing. He says, this is no good to any of them. Uh, James is calling his church to action. Uh, James says, show me your faith. And that show means to demonstrate, make it visible. Show me your faith um, by what you do. Um, And I love, I love the text where he says, show me your faith by, without your works, and I'm just going to show you my faith by what I do and how I live. Isn't that a beautiful way for us to, to think about it? Then James moves to his second example in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. Like I said, this is my favorite example. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Did he really just compare his church to demons? Did you catch that? That's bold. That is bold. Comparing demon church member together. It's bold, and I love it. He says that you believe God is one. In this context, remember, James is talking to primarily a Jewish audience. This God is one would have been very familiar to them. Very familiar. It comes from Deuteronomy uh, 6.4. It's called the Shema. Uh, it's, it's the text, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They memorize this. This is this is quoted. It's core to their doctrinal statement. It's core to their confession. It would have been known by each believer that heard this. And in this context, this text, James says, it's great that you know your doctrinal statement. That's awesome. Good work on knowing your doctrinal statement. The problem is not the confession, though. The problem is that it didn't go beyond the confession to the heart of the confessor. It was just there. And James is saying demons are among some of the most orthodox theologians that we know. They know Deuteronomy. They know Deuteronomy. And James says that they think of Deuteronomy and they shudder. Because they know the Lord is one. And so uh, for, for James, he says, saving faith is demonstrated. It's more than verbal consent. It's more than intellectual consent, that it is transformative. It, it possesses us heart and mind, body, soul, strength. That that is what true faith does. I had a professor in seminary, and I, I loved this quote. It's not his. Um, we all steal from others who stole from others and stole from others. This wasn't his. It was the first time I heard it, though. And I had to look it up and be like, what did he just say? He just passed it really quickly, and I loved it. It stuck with me, though. Um, And it's always fun when you type out words in in Word or whatever, and it gives the squiggly line because it doesn't know it. That means that you're smart. If you know words that Word doesn't know. Anyway, it says, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Anyone? Anyone heard of that? No, I hadn't either. Orthodoxy, ortho means right, doxy means doctrine. So right, doctrine, orthodoxy, uh, leads to orthopraxy. Ortho meaning right again, praxy meaning practice, or living, or action. So in other words, your right belief leads to right action, compels you to right action. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. James boldly, again, might I add, says, when what you know does not lead you to action, you are more like demons than you know. You're more like demons than you know. Like I said, James was was real tender with his church on this, on this morning. Um, it's just awesome that he compares them. To the, then he gives us, one final set of examples, and this is Abraham and Rahab. Uh, again, how many have ever proven themselves to be right? You've done something that just absolutely justified you. When I was thinking of this, I instantly thought of an example. Um, so there was—it was several years ago. A couple of guys were—we were together, and we were talking about old sports. We were all played sports, and so we were talking about those old experiences. And if there is—that is a breeding ground for exaggeration. Um, we just tell these stories. I, I, when I think, I grew up playing soccer. When I think back on my time in soccer, I like to think of it as like we were professionals just in high school, like we were, anyway. It, uh, now you go to a game, and you're like, wow. <laughs> Whoa, that was not right. But anyway, so when we were talking about um, our high school experiences, we knew there was exaggeration going on. We happened to be having a conversation about how hard we could throw a fastball, Okay which is important. Guys need to know the velocity of our fastballs. But we were having this conversation. One of the guys in our group said, I can throw an 80 mile an hour fastball. Now, for those of you who don't know, that is ridiculous. Like pros throw 90, okay? Uh, 80 miles an hour is cooking. And so instantly, all of us were like, kind of giving him a hard time, be like, there's no way, dude. There's no way you could do that. And we messed with him, and, you know, uh, we were really nice to him. Uh, until one day, our church had a, a student ministry event that they brought in a, um, a pitching machine. So you stand, and you get to throw, and it clocks you, puts it on the radar. So all of our students were throwing and trying to have competitions. And at the end, we thought, let's call this guy's bluff. And so we called him over there. We were all lined up. We were all throwing, and I don't want to brag, but we were tearing it up, you know, '60s, you know, just feeling good about ourselves. And uh, then he steps up, and he takes the ball, and he releases this thing, and you could tell when it hit the backdrop, like, ooh, that was different. That had some heat on it. That had some heat on it. So we looked at the little the little gun. And uh, we stepped up to, to the gun, and it read 82 miles an hour. Now, when that number flashed on that screen, I won't even go, he's a prideful guy, I won't even go, but when it, when it flashed on the screen, that was his justification. He didn't need to say anything else. <laughs> he just points. He just points. Um, James is saying, you see Abraham and Rahab's faith? You see what they did? That's that's their radar gun. Take a look at that. You don't need for them to say anything else because did you see what they did for Abraham? He was willing to give up his own son. More than that, he was willing to forfeit that promise that was given to him through being the offspring, the he, was, he was about to lay that down as he was going to be obedient to God. That's the radar gun. For Rahab, she, she sacrificed what could have been her very life to protect God's people. Again, radar gun. Look at the radar gun. It was demonstrated. I've heard it said that faith that does not work is a faith that doesn't work. Faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't work. Um, when teaching this text, uh, a pastor, a theologian, one of, I think, one of my heroes in the faith, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he gave a, an example, an analogy that just is powerful to me. And I wanted to share it. I wanted to read it to you. It says this, A tree has been planted into the ground. Now, the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of the tree or the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard and when the springtime comes, there is no bud and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year, in the next, in the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. Would you say then it is dead? Yes, and you are correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it or given it life, but that the absence of the leaves is a proof that it is dead so too is it with the professor of the faith. If he has life, that life must give fruits. If not, fruit works. If his faith has a root, but there be no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that this person is spiritually dead. This is a powerful and vivid example because Our substance, our life, comes from our root. Amen? And that root is Jesus Christ and him alone. Our root is Jesus Christ and him alone. Whether or not our lives have fruit or not, our root is Jesus Christ and him alone. The fruit does not give life. It doesn't. The fruit does not give life. The root does. And so to grab an apple and to walk up to a dead tree and just shove it into the dead branches. That's not going to make that tree any more alive. It's just going to be a dead tree with an apple on it. The tree, the, the, the apple does not give life to the tree. In the same way, adding, adding works to a dead life does not bring life. The root brings life. We get it wrong when we come the other way. The root gives life. Um, just like that tree, if day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we stand and we see no signs of fruit, no signs of life. What does James say? This is proof that that tree is dead. This is proof that that tree is dead. This is truth or proof, church, that that Faith is dead. And so just as James thousands of years ago said to the people of God, the same message, the call remains the same for us. If, if you have no life, if you have no root, if you have seen no fruit, you cannot demonstrate something you don't have. You can't prove your ability to throw an 80-mile-an-hour fastball if you do not have that ability. If you don't have life in your root and you feel a bit like that tree that Spurgeon beautifully describes, uh, dry and withered, our tendency here may be to try to add fruit to our dead branches, to try to just, well, okay, I feel dead, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to add some things to my to-do list to put on my tree to make me feel not as dead, To make me show signs of life. Where people can look at my tree and say, I do see an apple. Maybe, maybe. And that's going to be our tendency. And maybe that's been your tendency your entire walk with Jesus. That it has been one, picking up an apple and shoving it up there a week. And James says, these apples do not give the tree life. Nor do they even stay up in the tree. When a good wind blows, those apples tend to fall right off there, don't they? The good news this morning, and hear me when I say this, is that God does not save good people. God does not save good people, and God is not looking for the prettiest trees, the prettiest, most alive trees to place his fruit on. That's not the, the, the picture that the Bible paints. Instead, God does not save good people. He saves sinners. God doesn't pick people who are the best at doing good. God saves sinners and transforms them, and then he shows off his glory by bringing fruit out of that life. That's the gospel. Romans 5.8, and we, we used this part in a song this morning. It said, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead trees, Christ died for us, giving us a, a root. He looked at me and gave me life. And now he wants to produce fruit in my life for his glory. And that's where we are this morning. So the call, hear me, is not for us to clean up and to get something. um, I don't want you to walk out of here with something more on your to-do list to attain a better standing before Jesus. That's the opposite of what James is calling us to do the call for us this morning is not to just start doing really good things, which good things are good, don't, don't get me wrong, but it's not to just start doing good things, it's to come to Jesus, period. It's to come to Jesus, period. Um, and I don't want you to leave here with just another thing to do. My prayer is that you simply realize how good God is through, that, through this, that he loves you, that he wants to connect you with a life-giving root, That from that, your dead branches will bring out fruit. That you won't have to add fruit to it, but that you will produce fruit naturally. That faith does. In the same way that the velocity of a fastball is seen and demonstrated by the numbers on a radar, the vibrancy of our faith is demonstrated through the actions of our lives. That's our radar guns. We're called to be fruit bearers and our faith is called to action. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this text. And I thank you for your word promising to bring life into dead bones. So right now, I I pray that you just begin to give us a picture, a glimpse of your son. Give us a glimpse of what he has done for us. And from that, I pray that our affection, our heart grows for him, that we can produce fruit for his glory. Give us the strength, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.